Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Welcome to part two of my chat with Sergeant Matt Calverley. If you have not listened to part one, I would highly recommend pausing this episode and listening to that first. Matt Calverley was an officer who found himself in situations that most of us could not even begin to imagine. Incidents that would see him not rest until he brought justice to victims and their families. As a warning, this episode involves discussions of violence against minors that some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Matt, you talk in your career about uh, moving to traffic because uh, you didn't want to take part in just the normal day-to-day fender bender type accents. And for our listeners out there, a fender bender is, you know, those minor traffic collisions that uh, one often sees on the road that would be dealt with by general duties police officers. But one of the particular instance that you were involved in actually resulted in the arrest and conviction of a gentleman who had committed some very serious crimes against uh, young people uh, which was very fortuitous on your behalf investigating a traffic crash and resulted in this significant arrest and no doubt saved the lives of a number of young people who were victims of child exploitation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that investigation? Yes, that was a, a relatively minor accident, as you rightly say. A, a car had, a load had rolled onto its roof. It was, 
there was no major um, intrusion into the vehicle. The guy who was driving it was in his mid-60s. Uh, the ambulance crew extracted him. He was semi-conscious. We thought he may possibly be badly hurt, but not so sure. I, I was not needed to deal with the accident or to investigate it. That was already in hand, so I volunteered to be what we call the continuity officer, which is where you escort the casualty to hospital to provide a chain of identification all the way through to wherever it ended up. And at hospital, while this guy was in A&E being treated by the, by the medics, I started to go through his belongings to find identification so we could tell his, his wife or his kids or whoever that you know, he's, he's in hospital. Found his wallet and um, alarm bells started ringing when I noticed that it was a, a leather wallet and it had been sliced open with a razor blade and then super glued shut if you can imagine that, along the top edge. Now, I've seen this before at particularly Notting Hill Carnival. It's a way of creating a hidden compartment where you can store uh, drugs, mainly cannabis or, or tablets. So I prized open this superglued seam of this wallet and tipped it open, and out onto the desk in front of me fell eight Polaroid photos of this child, this guy raping a child. So I just recalled in horror. It was obviously the same guy because he's taken these Polaroids, in, including pictures of himself in the mirror which captured his own face. So I called our child protection units um, and they came down to the scene, um, took over from me and as soon as the guy was willing to be discharged they arrested him, suspicion of these child sex offences. They then embarked on a very lengthy and very thorough diligent investigation to identify the girl in the photographs. He eventually found her many miles from London. Uh, by this time she was at the age of, um, I think she was 13 by this point. Um, he was. She gave an excellent uh, video interview detailing how this guy had been abusing her since the age of eight. He went to. He pleaded not guilty to all the charges. Went to the Old Bailey. Uh, on about day three or four of the trial, I was sat at the back of the court, and the, the girl's father could suddenly take no more. He launched across the court and started trying to get into the dock to attack this this monster who'd abused his daughter despite every moral fibre in my body telling me to let him get on with it or even help out. I was a uniformed police officer, I had to intervene, so I dragged this guy away and took him outside the court to calm down a bit. He was very apologetic and I said, like, you don't need to apologise, I, I have a young daughter myself, I, I absolutely don't blame the sentiment. Uh, and that was, uh, he, he calmed down, we went back into court. <laughs> End of the trial, the jury very quickly convicted this guy of uh, about eight different offences of of rape, indecent assault, and possession of indecent images. Uh, he was jailed for a total of, I think it was 36 or 38 years. Um, and outside the court, probably one of the most poignant moments of my career when the girl's parents just said to me, thank you for giving us our daughter back. And that, that was, to me, that was the most emotional moment of my career, you know, that I'd, I'd re almost reunited a lost emotionally lost daughter with her with her parents and she could then pick up her pieces of her life and, and get on with it uh, the guy went to um, went to prison uh, I don't know the circumstances but he, he died in prison three years later three years into his lengthy sentence so that was I think another probably another chapter of closure for the girl and her parents uh, but that, that was one of my career highlights to just from a very innocuous road traffic collision to end up with almost repairing a child's life and a relationship with her parents and hope and helping her to move on from what was most the most horrific of experiences um, 
that's something that'll stay with me forever, without a doubt. You know, there's there's just so many emotions that would run through people's minds uh, when dealing with such an investigation, and and, and anger is is one of those. But what does come to the fore is the professionalism of your investigation and the way you conduct yourself. Because ultimately what you want to do is you want to be able to put these apparent individuals before the court process and have them be held accountable so that you can get a resolution for the victims. Yes. Incredible. Mm -hmm. And Um, some people have asked me, um, how, how did you... How did you not sort of take him around the back and beat him up? How did you how did you maintain your composure when dealing with yeah. this monster? Mm. Uh, and I always have the same answer. So because if I had, he would have got off for <laughs> he would have got off at court for breaches of police procedure. I have to be completely and utterly down the line, completely mm. respecting his rights, make sure everything every T is crossed, every I is dotted, uh, to make sure that he has no technicality to get off with at court. And that's what motivates me. Uh, to to park those emotions of what you would really like to do to this monster yeah, and, and deal with him utterly professionally. Do you know, I remember when I was going through my police academy training and in my early policing years that I was always told that minor traffic offences would often lead to the arrest of significant offenders because they didn't drive registered motor vehicles, they didn't have driver's licences, you know, they didn't indicate, they did the minor things which would bring attention upon themselves, which would then result in us identifying more serious and significant offences which they would be arrested for. So it was always a a, a really uh, significant part of our operational police approach was policing individuals through through traffic offences which were identified yes now in 2004 uh, you won an award uh, for services to justice for the successful investigation of a fatal traffic accident sadly involving the death of the child now those investigations are not only incredibly emotive because of having to liaise with the family and looking out for their interest but also helping them to bring closure to what is an incredibly upsetting uh, event, Uh, but often the complexities of such an investigation and pursuing those involved and the complexities of of the investigation in the data and the forensic crime scene, etc., etc. It's uh, quite extensive. Are you able to talk us through that particular investigation and what led it to become such a success for yourself in terms of receiving that award? Uh, Certainly, yes. This was, uh, it all began on Christmas Day in 2003, uh, I was um, I was contacted at home by um, one by another um, forensic collision investigator who was dealing with a, a hit and run nearby involving a, a six year old child who was not expected to survive. He just wanted some some technical information from me. Uh, the following day, Boxing Day, I went into work to pick up the investigation. Quite quickly, became engrossed in it. This was a, a child who'd been running across the road. Uh, in Southall Broadway, there've been there's where there's two lanes of traffic. The outside lane is for traffic, and the inside lane is a bus lane, which, although it's Christmas Day, was in force, so it should have been empty. Uh, this offending driver was racing up the inside of the bus lane, up the inside of stationary traffic, uh, struck the little girl, uh, and drove off. Now, within uh, somebody took the registration number of the car, so within few within a couple of hours, we we had an identity on the owner of the car. So it should have been should have been fairly straightforward, but it was anything but. Uh, this guy carried out the, the the very well-trodden tactic of very quickly parking his car somewhere and then reporting it stolen to the police, trying to throw us off the scent. And as the investigation unfolded, there was a dozen ways that I could prove that this guy was lying to me. 
but I couldn't find the smoking gun. I couldn't prove that he was in the driving seat at the time. And I had him interviewed in custody two, three times, trying to trying to find that piece of evidence. Meanwhile, seven days afterwards, on New Year's Day, the girl passed away in hospital. So we're now dealing with a, a fatal hit and run. And I said to um, my boss at the time, I said, if you take all my other workload off me, I'll solve this. And, and my boss was, go for it. I'll, t- I'll, I'll diss out your other cases and you can just focus on this one. Uh, so I did for three months, work night and day, trying to find the proof. And the proof came late one night when I was looking at a, uh, a spreadsheet of the suspect's mobile phone record. This was at a time in the early 2000s when mobile phone technology was quite primitive. Uh, I was new to Microsoft Excel. It was uh, I didn't understand how it worked fully. So I was just playing around with it, basically sorting, use putting filters in and sorting this, this guy's phone records. And then something stood out to me. I thought his, his, his phone had made a phone call at 4 a.m. on Boxing Day. And I thought, no, that can't be right because he was arrested on Christmas Day night and he was in custody overnight. So I checked his custody record and he'd been released from custody at 3.53. So I thought, okay, we're getting somewhere now. He's been released from custody at 3.53 in the morning and seven minutes later he's phoned somebody. Who has he phoned? Is this somebody I know? Do I need to do a subscriber check to find out who owns this phone? thought, before I do that, I'll check the existing case notes and just see if we know this, who he's phoned. And lo and behold, his number was known to me. It belonged to an independent witness to the accident the day before. The, um, a guy who said he was a passing van driver. He saw the crash. He gave a vague description of the car, the driver. So I sort of stopped to take stock. I thought, right, why has my suspect, at four o'clock in the morning, phoned somebody who should be a complete stranger to him? Well, there's only one way to find only one way to find out. So six o'clock the following morning, I went round to this independent witness's address, boshed his door in, and arrested him for perverting the course of justice. Um, and he just flipped out immediately, started crying. He's like, "Please, please, don't arrest me! Don't arrest me! I'll tell you everything." Um, and he did. He rolled over completely. He wasn't a passing van driver at all. He was a passenger in the offending car. Him and the driver had concocted this story between them to uh, throw police off the scent and agree never to say anything about it. So I gave him a stark choice. I said, okay, well, you can stick with the original statement and you can go to prison for up to seven years for perverting the course of justice. Or you can become my key witness, give me a statement and get on with your life. Your choice. Uh, there's no honour amongst thieves. He quickly chose the second option, uh, agreed to give a statement against his friend. Uh, and then we got permission to charge the guy with uh, causing death by dangerous driving. The problem, again, the problem with that is the Crown Prosecution Service will rarely authorise a charge for causing death by dangerous driving based on a single moment of madness or a momentary lapse of reason. They want a, they want a pattern of bad driving. So it was back to the investigation for me to try and find a pattern. And I hit the jackpot with a bus lane camera 340 metres before the crash scene, which showed the guy um, deliberately driving through a puddle and splashing some pedestrians. Now, when you have him driving like that to splash pedestrians and 300 metres later striking and killing a a young girl, there's your pattern of bad driving. Uh, So I got the authority to charge him with the higher offence. He still pleaded not guilty, which meant we went to court. The girl had to give evidence on video link, which was... Sorry, let me read that. One of my star witnesses was a 14-year-old girl, the only girl who'd noted the registration number. 
um, she had to give evidence uh, behind the screen uh, of what she'd seen, which is very traumatic for her, but she did an amazing job. Uh, the defence was clutching at straws because uh, it was put to the defendant that he'd been picked out in identification parade by three witnesses who'd all said he was the driver, uh, to which he'd replied that none of these people have seen me before, they just don't know, they just don't like somebody who happens to look like me. And at this point, the at this point, the defence barrister threw his hands up and asked for a brief adjournment. And then when we came back into court, he told the judge he was now prepared to admit he had been driving at the time of the accident. He was prepared to admit that, but still insisted the accident was the girl's fault because she ran across the road. So he tried every every twist and turn, but eventually, after a two-week trial, the jury found him guilty in less than 40 minutes. Uh, and he was he was sent to prison for a total of just under four years. Now I have my own views on whether four years is sufficient in prison for sufficient prison time for taking a girl's life, but uh, the reaction of the girl's parents outside the court was one of utter relief, um, closure, big hugs all round. Uh, they thanked me for getting justice for their daughter. If they were happy, I was happy. That was uh, what it came down to. I would like to, I would like to see him go away for the maximum of fourteen years, but life doesn't work like that. So, um, career highlight, is that a... That's a career highlight, yeah. And a few months later, yes, I was up at the House of Parliament getting the Livia Award for Professionalism, Service and Justice, the uh, letter from uh, yeah, the Prime Minister. And that was that was the career highlight, yeah. It, it was the, the, the solving the unsolvable, basically. It's what every, I think it's what every cop wants to do once in their career, is, is, is to crack the big case. And this, this was mine. It's interesting because during my forensic crash career, which uh, certainly wasn't as extensive as yours, Matt, it was often described to me that a forensic crash investigator is no different to that of a, a homicide investigator. The only difference being is that you're investigating the significant detail between the impact of two vehicles and, and the ramifications of those two vehicles or a vehicle coming into contact with something which has resulted in the death of a, a driver or passengers. You know, this, this, the amount of detail that you have to go into and, and the amount of reporting which has to has to come from that is is so significant it's on the same scale and and uh, complexities as, as that of a as a, as a commonly referred to homicide in, investigator uh, it's an incredibly fascinating area of, of work um yeah yeah the seven seven terror attacks in london uh, i think uh, will remain uh, a hugely poignant moment in time not only um for the global community but particularly for the UK and, and those that commute and, and live in London and because of the ramifications of the actions of the terrorist group that committed those atrocities on the city. Breaking news we're getting from the PA Newswire that there's been reports of an explosion outside Liverpool Street Station, that of course in the east end of London. I've had a report that there was an explosion at Liverpool Street and Edgware Road. Uh, we've, heard, uh, we've had a report of a bang west of Edgware Road. I don't know anything about Liverpool Street. I heard a very loud bang, the lights went out and the carriage filled with smoke and uh, people were thrown forward. We're desperately waiting for emergency services. We've got two major... Yeah, the emergency services have declared they're on their way down there. Um, we're issuing a system-wide code amber. Four bombs detonated on the London transport system, causing chaos and confusion. The terrorists will not succeed. Today's bombings will not weaken in any way our resolve 
to uphold the most deeply held principles of our societies. Shortly after the 7-7 um, terror attacks, uh, you put your hand up to become a disaster victim identification officer. And throughout your career, you, you've witnessed a lot of um, confronting scenes, a lot of death in your role as a forensic crash investigator. To put yourself forward for such a, a role as a disaster victim identification officer, was that a, a, almost a natural progression for you to go into an area that you were almost familiar with in terms of those confronting scenes and you know challenging environment? Pretty much, yes. Uh, I was at the time of the seven seven attacks. I was a uh, response team sergeant. I'd been promoted and moved out of traffic back to a response team. So uh, my role during the seven seven bombings was was limited. Very limited. I was basically supervising constables on uh, security duty, and I remember thinking at the time, "I've got more to offer than this." I'm a trained forensic collision investigator. I've dealt with lots of death. I want to do so. It's, it's too late. You know, the seven-seven has been and gone. But I'd like to train to. Do, I'd like to get more involved if there's any future such incident. So, in the aftermath of the seven-seven uh, attacks, the, the Met realised they had a, a desperate shortage of disaster victim identification officers who were responsible for going into the scenes, recovering the bodies, the body parts, in a dignified and forensically aware manner, then carrying out the, uh, the post-mortems with, uh, with the pathologist and the photographer, uh, all the way through to restoring the belongings to the, the family, the whole process from the scene all the way through to closure. Uh, in the aftermath, the Met advertised they wanted... 50 constables and 10 sergeants to train as, as DVI officers. 7-7 uh, had highlighted this kind of incident on the world stage and for the 50 vacancies there were over 3,000 applicants of uh, other people who wanted, other officers who wanted to get involved and again I was fortunate to become one of the 10 sergeants who was uh, selected. So we carried out, um, we did weeks of training uh, uh, in foundation and advanced levels of um, body recovery and identification the training was was fascinating some of the best training i've ever done we did the um the the boxing day tsunami as a case study and the paddington rail crash from 99 and uh it was uh, the opening statement from the chief superintendent still resonates with me he basically said the met are very good at planning for the last disaster not so good at planning for the next one and we're, we're trying to fix that um and he said, if, if phrases like, that's not in my remit, or I haven't had the training, or, or health and safety issue strike a chord with you, you may as well leave now, because this course is not for you. The expectation is that everyone will muck in and do everything. And, uh, and this was just music to my ears. I've, or I've never had much time for these, these cop-outs of, oh, I've not had the training, oh, it's not in my remit. Uh, so I did the, the training, and then over the next few years... We did many, many um, scenarios, training scenarios, everything from plane crashes to uh, terror attacks to um, natural disasters. We set up temporary mortuaries. We uh, practiced um, how to get very difficult bodies out of sort of mangled plane crash wreckage, that sort of thing. And then um, all the time I'm on my normal response duty and traffic duty. It's, this is a, an on-call role. It's not a permanent role uh, and I remained that way until six months prior to retirement in June 2015 when I was uh, on a, 
And a few days off, I was with my wife up in Birmingham at a, she was at a works conference and my phone rang and it was uh, Scotland Yard saying, you better get your kit ready, be prepared for deployment. And I'm sort of, right, what's happened? She said, just check Sky News. I've got, I've got too many phone calls to make. Look at the news, it's Tunisia. So I checked Sky News and there was the reports of this uh, Islamic State terrorist who'd strolled down a beach in Sousse in Tunisia, pulled an AK-47 that he'd hidden inside a parasol and, uh, and slaughtered 38 holidaymakers, of which 30 were British Hello. citizens. The beach attack is happening. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking Tourists for targets. were killed and injured today when at least one gunman opened fire in the Tunisian resort of Sousse. Someone firing a gun. Um, and then I looked at my wife and she got up and ran. And as I turned, the bullet just hit me in my arm. He's still armed, but they chase anyway. Staff at the Imperial Marhaba Hotel say at midday a gunman dressed as a tourist opened fire on the beach with a Kalashnikov. So I hightailed it back to London uh, to be deployed as the uh, mortuary team leader at Fulham Mortuary. We're told that within possibly within hours we'd be getting a steady stream of bodies that would be coming from Tunisia to RAF Bryce Norton and then a stream of uh, hearses will be bringing the, the bodies to us. And Despite 10 years of doing the training scenarios and um, all the various skills associated with it, nothing can prepare you for when you're standing there in your forensic suit with your mask and your gloves on and you cut the seal and start to open the first real body bag. And there's nothing can prepare you for that, especially when after 29 and a half years in the police, I'd seen loads and loads of injuries, fatal, non-fatal, caused by knives and handguns and shotguns but never ever had I seen the injuries caused by high velocity assault rifle rounds. Um, and I, I won't go into detail out of respect for the victims, but, but the amount of damage a high velocity rifle bullet can do is just unbelievable. And so we open these body bags and we're just like, oh my God, where do we start? And this, this is fortunately, this is where the pathologist takes over because they know where to start. Uh, and in a week, we carried out all 30 uh, post-mortems. We had three post-mortem stations on the go at any one time with three with a team on each one of a pathologist, um, the uh, forensic odontologist taking dental impressions. We had exhibits officers, uh, photographers, uh, PCs for manual handling and a police um, sergeant supervisor overseeing the whole thing. And the training worked. It was all, it all just kicks in, you know, the, the system works and you get these bodies processed and the, the pathologist and the odontologist get their evidence for, for identification and cause of death and then the bodies can be ready to to be returned to the to the families for, for whatever funeral arrangements they want to make. But I waited 10 years for that and I was glad that six months away from retirement I actually got the chance to put it into practice and we could, we could see that the training worked and we got closure for all these dozens and dozens of bereaved, bereaved people. I don't think the saying ordinary people doing extraordinary work has ever rung so true in terms of that scenario and dealing with that situation mm -hmm. and supporting yeah. families in bringing loved one homes. That's a, quite a remarkable story. Yeah. And I think what's more important, and I suppose 
the biggest reflection for me going back to the actual application process is 3,000 police officers applying to do that work. For mm-hmm. me, yes. sounds an incredibly high number because knowing what the yeah. type of what you're going to be doing, I just think just shows the type of person that policing recruits in terms of their, their, their resilience and their ability to be able to deal with yes. challenging situations. And often yeah. it's your colleagues around you that help you get you through those situations because it is ordinary people mm-hmm. doing extraordinary work. And I think it's um, Absolutely, an, abs- yes. an absolute credit to, to all of you for being able to get through that type of scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that, yes. 2016, you retired from the Met after 30 years of policing. Is that right? Just over 30 years? Yes, that's that's correct. Yes, and and since thirty years pol- and eight days, thirtieth, those those eight days are important. Anything can happen in them. Absolutely. And yes. and since since policing, you've collated uh, almost four hundred anecdotes from your career, a large selection of which feature in your recent memoir, "Cops and Horrors: Secret Tales from the Front Line." What was it like? What what caused you? Was this a was this a lockdown book in terms of something to do during COVID, or was it something that you'd always thought was important to get down on paper? Well, the way it evolved was um, I've always been a bit of a storyteller. You know, from when my kids were very young, I'd come home from work and they'd be like, you know, tell us a story, Daddy. What happened at work today? You know, tell them suitably sanitised stories. I would sort of do this to to my family and adult friends as well, and then. Three years after retirement, my wife and I went on holiday to Cuba and we were on the, this is November 2019, so just before lockdown, we were on the on the plane on the way back over the Atlantic and I, I told my wife, for some reason, I told her another anecdote, something that just occurred to me and she sort of turned to me and said, you really should write these down. You could make a book out of this. You've got so many stories. So I did. I started writing them down. And then when the number got to like 200, 250, 300, 400 stories, uh, I thought there could well be a book in this. I I sent a freedom of information request to the Met for my service record, which they very kindly sent me this huge bundle of all my um, commendations, injuries on duty, uh, qualifications, courses, etc., which helped me formulate the timeline of when stuff happened. So I wrote this um, I wrote this book and I started touting it around literary agents. Eventually got taken on by Andrew Lowney Agency in London. Uh, he got me a publishing deal with, with Mirror, Mirror Books. And then it was published in April this year. Uh, with the help, I wrote it with the help of a ghostwriter, Nicholas Stowe, who's an award-nominated best-selling ghostwriter. And the rest is history. That's how it happened. And for, the, for our listeners that are out there listening to this, uh, to this podcast, Protect and Serve, where can we get a copy of um, Cops and Horrors? Um, it's available from uh, Amazon, from uh, Mirror Books, um, WH Smith, Waterstones, uh, lots of other retailers both available in paperback and uh, Kindle formats at the moment. Yeah, hopefully uh, readers will enjoy it without being too traumatised. And it is a fascinating read. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, reading the book um, from start to finish. Um, it's been an honour to listen to you today, share some of your stories about your 30 plus year career with the Metropolitan Police, uh, some incredibly confronting and challenging situations which you've navigated with um, uh, complete professionalism and uh, the saying an ordinary person doing extraordinary work uh, has never meant more than for an individual like yourself. So thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your stories. Uh, we wish you the best of luck uh, with the with the book and any activities you take up in your post-policing career. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mashed Pumpkin production. Presented by Oliver Lawrence. 
Research and Questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Protect and Serve remembers the lives lost in the tragic events spoken about in today's episode.